we were born into this, but we didn't cause it. So there's this really deep injustice that we've been served. Hi, I'm Gretchen, and this is Before It's Gone, the podcast where we talk about things that we might lose to climate change. This is our second episode with Danine O'Rourke, and we're talking about what she and her entire generation stand to lose, their future. You know, we're a frontline community when we talk about climate change. Like every, every person on this planet who's younger than 31 has never lived um, <clears throat> in a month with global temperatures that were below the average. So we've been, we don't know anything besides climate change. We've never lived with outside of climate change. It's defined our entire existence. She sees the climate crisis directly influencing how she and her friends plan for their futures. We've been handed it, and if we want to have children, it's our duty to um, fight for a world that allows children to live. And it's, you know, I've, I've had so many disheartening conversations with young people about how they can't have children because of the world and how, it's just, it, we've really truly been robbed of, of a future. And like, while it can be extremely disheartening, I'm so like every day inspired by like how quick we are to mobilize and how passionate. Something so beautiful and fiery about my generation that just really, really um, keeps me hopeful for the fact that like we will be leading this like in, in due time. I had to ask Deneen where she learned her activism. Did it come from her parents? My parents aren't activists, but they're very um, supportive and engaged in other ways. Um, my mom's a teacher and um, you know, they, they taught me about sea level rise as it would be affecting our community on Long Island. You know, our house is like five feet above sea level. Growing up on Long Island and seeing like firsthand like the effects of Hurricane Sandy, and the, the ocean just like came up to my neighborhood, and there was I I was on a walk like when it, with some friends when it when it actually hit, and this playground that I always used to go on was just like in the ocean, like the waves were like on top of the slide, and it it was it was a very like dystopic image to see, and. Now when, when we drive on this, this road alongside the ocean, you used to never be able to see the ocean from the road because of all the dunes, and now you can see everything, and everything's eroding. And it's really, it's really clear, it's very obvious what's happening. The fact that bothers me the most is how that hurricane wasn't even a hurricane when it hit my town. It was a tropical storm. So to even, I, I simply can't fathom what a Category 4 hurricane would look like for where I'm from. That's one of the 
the most like pressing things that my parents are thinking about right now is like probably like this the sea level won't be at our house in in their lifetime but our house won't be worth anything if this one particular beachfront road that all the um, Manhattan elites come to in the summer that give like we're a tourist town so it gives our town um, revenue if if those beaches don't exist anymore then our our house is is not going to be worth anything so <clears throat> they're hoping to move when they retire in the next few years it's you know, the fact that it's so, it's so easy for us to move is really, um, it's, it's almost unsettling how, how fortunate I am in this situation and how that's just simply not an option for millions of people on this planet who will be feeling it way before we will, the, the ability to just move their house. You know, there's people's culture that is tied to islands that they, they're not going to leave. It's, it's a really important reminder to hold in doing this work that, like, yes, in some way I could say that I'm a part of a frontline community, but it doesn't feel the same urgency and injustice as places around the world like Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands and Fiji and even like even in Miami and New Orleans all those places where um, many people just won't be able to afford to move. There's really big looming questions for how the U.S. is going to deal with even just sea level rise on its own with the amount of people that live on the coast. So why, I asked, does she think people are so blind to the impacts of climate change? Oh, it could be answered in so many ways. You know, it could, there's one hand that's like, well, it's money. <laughs> it's the fossil fuel industry lobbying and the whole reason why people deny the issue is because of their denial campaigns that they've created using um, the platforms that like Big Tobacco used when they tried to deny that secondhand smoking wasn't harmful. You know, it's, it's these age-old techniques to seem like there's a debate created when really there's, um, you know, 97% of scientists agree that this is an issue. That's not, that's not a debate <laughs> anymore. So what does she think it will take to make people wake up and act? We don't really act until it's right in front of us. And that's the thing about climate change is that it really, it's, it's scientifically difficult to attribute single events to the issue. Um, even when it's like very clear, like Hurricane Sandy and Typhoon Haiyan, like all of these. But, you know, there's, it's, until it hits the fan. I, and like, it has, 
it, it has hit the fan. But like what, I, I don't know what moment it's going to take for the rest of the world to wake up, you know, the rest of, at least the US. But I think things like having a climate denier as president, like almost helps in a way to wake people up and get them to see um, it requires us being even louder than we were before. But <clears throat> there's something I, I think about the human psyche and how we act and how we're all like, at least in Western society, very individualized and it takes like personal effect to get us to get up. So how does she deal with people in her own life who haven't yet woken up to the urgency of climate action? It's so frustrating. It's like, oh, Deneen, like, she does that climate change stuff, you know? <laughs> and like, oh, I'm so, thank you for, for doing this work and for standing up for, for our future. And it's just like, I don't want to, I don't give a shit. I don't want to hear that from you right now. Like, just join me. <laughs> And, but, you know, on one hand, you know, I have a lot of friends who do other kind of like important work in the world that isn't related to climate change. And I think they're all connected, but it's more so my friends who like aren't really engaged in a specific way and like in any kind of social change. Um, it's so frustrating. And it's been like when I first got involved, it was really difficult for me to connect with like my high school friends and um, friends who weren't engaged, but I, I've been like, um, just being more gentle about it. And like, I need to also like have a life outside of it in a way. Um, and sometimes when I say that though, I second guess myself, <laughs> I'm not sure. It would be great if everyone in my life was like, <laughs> absolutely involved in this um, but they're not and like I have to approach that with love and understanding and there's a reason why they're not and hopefully they will be and I, I like to think of it as like I don't want to preach to them I just want to like continue doing what I'm doing and make it so interesting and enticing that they'll want to join one way she makes it interesting is by attending the international cop summit on climate change I'll be leading um, this coming delegation to the UN climate negotiations. Um, and so that will be in November in Bonn, Germany. And we'll, I'll be, I'm working with an organization called Sustainus that has been bringing young people to these UN negotiations for the past 15 or so years um, with the intention that young people's voices have been excluded from these negotiations. This will be her second time attending. She also went to last year's COP in Marrakesh. <laughs> COP is the Conference of the Parties, as it stands, is, wow, such an interesting space and moment in the global climate justice movement that I, I've, I'm really honored to have, have witnessed and been engaged in. We were selected um, as a group of storytellers from across every corner of the country, from 
Hawaii to Washington State, New York. Um, and there were 13 of us and we, for two weeks we were at COP in Marrakesh, um, working with other youth delegations who are there from across the world. COP22 was um, a particularly, you know, important moment in the um, in the in the UN process since it was the COP right after Paris, where the Paris Agreement was signed after 20 years of negotiating. Finally, there was an agreement, an agreement that doesn't even mention the words fossil fuels once, but it's an agreement. So, um, you know, while Paris was all about getting the agreement passed, Marrakesh was figuring out how to implement it, and it was the roadmap. This gathering was last November, right at the time of the U.S. presidential election. It was only the third day into the conference, and I, I've never been to a bigger funeral in my life, I believe, walking in there that morning on November 9th, and seeing how this international community deeply understood what this meant for the world. But despite the collective mourning and the fact that everyone there believed in climate change, Deneen witnessed some big ironies at the COP summit. The, all of the COP conferences are sponsored by major companies like Shell and Chevron, Exxon. It's, it's, it's comical. Sometimes <clears throat> we call it the conference of the polluters. <laughs> COP. <laughs> um, and Marrakesh was also sponsored by these two major mining companies that were um, mining for phosphates and silver in different parts of the country. One of the um, companies um, for six years has had been taking, um, trying to take water from an indigenous nation in the mountains of Morocco, um, a village called Imider, and they for years occupied the the mine that was trying to take their water. It's similar to Standing Rock, the same story. Um, and so we actually sent one of our delegates down there. Um, her name is Kayla and she's a Navajo woman. And she went there like sharing the stories of the mining on her reservation and her stories of going to Standing Rock and um, stayed there for a few days while we were at COP. And, and, um, you know, something they said to her was, we had no idea that this was happening in the U.S. We thought everyone was free there. And this, this really clear showing of how these struggles are so connected. When she came back, we actually hosted some really big actions at the booths of those major mining companies that were doing this. Um, and they were you know, locals who came up to me at one point, because I was holding this banner, and they said, we've never heard of Imidare. Like, we didn't know that this was a problem. Um, and it was only 300 kilometers south of the conference. So it's just, it just was really keeping under wraps by the government. 
But it wasn't easy to stage these protests at COP. If you wanted to have any kind of demonstration inside of the conference, you had to apply like 24 hours ahead of time. And you had to tell the secretariat everything that was going to be on your banner. Um, and then they would tell you like, they would tell you you need to take that off or you can't say this. You, you couldn't mention anyone's name or any country in your action because you couldn't be confrontational. <laughs> it's just the complete antithesis to having any kind of protest. It, it was extremely frustrating, but it required us to be very creative. Um, and they give you like, okay, you have a half hour and you can only be in this space. <laughs> it made me really excited to come back home and hold some actions that really piss people off. And <laughs> that's like, you know, that's the point here. I want to create disruption. She's got big plans for the 2017 COP in Germany. Really, the goal is to convene a, a really um, skillful group of young people to go and provide our, and utilize our skills to elevate the voices of those on the front lines at COP. So the largest coal mine in Europe just happens to be an hour from where the conference is being held, so that's exciting. I had one last question for Deneen. Looking out at her future, knowing all that she does about the realities of climate change. Is she hopeful? I'm hopeful. I'm, I think about um, one of my teachers, Joanna Macy, um, and she's a philosopher um, who's developed a practice called The Work That Reconnects. Um, and it's about honoring your pain for the world and moving forward with it in an active way. She refers to it as active hope, that there's, there's, there's passive hope of being like, oh, you know, for example, like, oh, I think Obama's going to save us from climate change, like, he'll do it, that's hopeful, you know, that's like, that's passive hope, that's not taking it into your own hands, but active hope is, you know, saying, it's being honest about the severity that we're in, but it's making the choice to act and thus the action like breeds. It, it, it can't help but just breed this sense of hope, I think. I think it's just inevitable that when you're a part of a movement this vibrant and loving and intelligent and engaged and growing so rapidly, how can, how can I not be hopeful? You know, they're not mutually exclusive. This understanding of, yeah, it's going to be really, really shitty. <laughs> and we're already locked into some extremely horrible um, conditions for the future that, like, people are already feeling around the world. And that's real. Um, and there's I, there's a balance of like communicating that extreme um, the extreme place that we're in with this issue right now with the unprecedented 
inspiring movement that we can be a part of to change it. And I just feel like I don't have a choice about whether or not I can be hopeful. If I wasn't, then I just, I wouldn't be as engaged as I am because I just could, I wouldn't be able to handle it. I would, I don't want to be motivated by fear. You know, I'm motivated by my love for the world and the people on this planet and our interconnection to it all. And there's, <laughs> of course I'm hopeful because of that. I have to be. <laughs> And that is it for this episode of Before It's Gone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Deneen, for participating. Beforeitsgone.show is our website. You'll find our past episodes, where you can subscribe, and most importantly, a button where you can donate to the show and support our efforts to tell stories about climate change. Our next episode is about something that is near and dear to my heart, maple syrup. And it's a real good news, bad news situation. The bad news is maple syrup production is definitely being affected by climate change. The good news is Vermont has its best scientists on the case. UVM um, Proctor Maple Research Center has um, more experimental research going on now, some of which they they look at saplings and actually draw the maple, draw the sap right out of the tops of saplings. So it's, I mean, that's something that's very different from what's going on now and is not, it's just in the research phase, but you know, there are people at UVM and people at Cornell that are looking at a variety of different adaptations and innovations for continuing to increase maple yields and maple production. That's next time on Before It's Gone. I'm Gretchen. Beforeitsgone.show is our website. And thank you again for listening. <laughs>